fine, and I'm happy to be back. I hope I'm not out of practice after missing a week. Um, I, uh, I don't miss very often. I was thinking about the last Sunday I missed. I think it was when my granddaughter, Emery, was born, which was December 13th of last year. And we were in Arkansas hanging out with her, which is going to be the sum total of my vacations from here till <laughs> Jesus comes again. I don't know. And that's where we want to be. So we were able to spend a week with uh, my sons, uh, with my daughter-in-law, and with Emery. And uh, Emery's wonderful. I mean, seven months, she has me wrapped around her little finger. Uh, I mean, we've just bonded. Uh, I just love that little baby. And you can't understand it unless you're a grandparent. If you're a grandparent, you know, you could testify. I get to, though, because I'm up here with the microphone. And so uh, boys are different than girls. I mean, duh, right? Boys are different than girls. Um, actually, actually, I guess it's not duh. I really believe that. I know it may be contested in some circles today. Boys are different than girls. And raising boys is very different or it's very different than girls. I'm not necessarily good at raising boys. I'm familiar with it. Never raised a girl. And uh, girls are a little more complicated. They have things uh, like dresses and pageants and stuff that my boys never had. My daughter-in-law, Eden, is a girly girl. And um, she grew up dancing and she went to college on a scholarship to be a cheerleader. And, you know, she just does things like that. And my son, not so much. He's a lot like me where we don't really dance and we've never been cheerleaders. And so um, we were talking and Eden said, hey, I'm going to enter Emory into the Miss Baxter County uh, pageant for the fair. And uh, I, I said, well, I don't like that idea, um, but I'm a grandpa and my vote doesn't count when it comes to parenting. And so I told her, I said, Eden, I love you. I said, you and I, you know, we're like family. You're like my daughter. I said, I think I've earned the right to be able to tell you that I don't want anyone telling my granddaughter whether she's pretty or not or whether she's wonderful or not. I said, I don't want her sitting there with a bunch of judges telling her that she's wonderful. I want to be the one to do that. And Eden said, I know, I get it, I understand. Uh, we're just going to do this until she's one year old. And then, you know, true or not true, she's the mama. And I said, listen, I will support her no matter what. I'm not judging pageants. I'm just unfamiliar with them, right? I'm a little bit un uneasy. And I said, I'll, I'll, I'll be supportive no matter what. And so I find myself at this pageant and it took, takes place, um, it's not, not the fairground. It's a high school auditorium packed with people. It costs five bucks to get in. And I had a whole carload of people and uh, family and friends who, and another one who followed us in. And so it cost me a lot more than five bucks to get in. And, uh, and so we're in there and I'm kind of sitting back and my arms are folded and I'm like, I don't know. The babies go first, the 12 months and under. And then they had pageants all day, all the way up to like grown up, you know, college age, whatever, young 20s women. We didn't have to stay for that, thank God. We just had to stay for the babies. And um, so, so we're there, and the babies start parading out on stage. Now, they have judges for these pageants, which is crazy to me. How do you judge babies? By the pound? I mean, I don't know how you judge babies. These pageants, these judges were like passing note cards to each other and whispering. And, you know, I was very nervous. I wanted to get up there and hear what they were saying. And so, you know, the mamas parade the babies across the stage, and my little granddaughter looked like a fishing lure, like a bass lure. She was dressed in feathers with um, rhinestones on her head, and she was as cute as she could be, but I mean, like, you could catch a bass or a trout or something with that. And so, so Eden walked her over, and she sits her down in the middle of the stage, and Emery's just, you know, doing her thing. And so then they come, uh, it comes time for them to announce the, the winners. And um, I'm nervous. All right, and I'm disapproving and, you know, going, oh my gosh, I don't like this. Look at all these crazy, you know, and, uh, and then I'm walking up to the front to take video and stuff across the stage and then they come time, winners, they have winners in this pageant. So they give like six prizes out to the girls who are in the top six and uh, they give away like um, 
best dressed. <laughs> These little, you know, infants. They gave an award for the best hair. Not one of them had hair. None of them had hair. <laughs> one little girl had hair sticking straight up and she got the prize because she had hair like that. She had hair. That was it. Um, and, and then they gave, they said, best personality, Emory Melick. And my daughter-in-law comes out. I'm like, personality? So that's not the prize we want to win. That's the prize they give the girl. I mean, I, no, I didn't want Miss Personality, right? That's like, that's like just for showing up. But I'm still okay. I'm up there taking video, blocking people, you know. And, and, and so then of the six, they say, we're getting ready to announce. And it was like best in show, whatever they call it, you know, grand prize. They say, Emory Mellick, she's the queen of the Baxter County pageant. And so I get pumped. I'm like, I mean, I am excited. I'm all right there in front of the stage, videoing, yelling. That's my granddaughter. All, all you babies are ugly. All you parents have ugly babies. You didn't get to, you shouldn't even be here. Look at you. No, I didn't call, I didn't call anybody's baby ugly. But then there's Emory, seven months old. And they said, Emory Mellick has a reign for a year. She's got a reign. I mean, she has subjects. And... Um, she has responsibilities. She's in the front page of the paper. She has to ride in a convertible in the front of the parade for the fair. And um, all of a sudden, my attitude changed. I was like, instead of disapproving and a little standoffish and not liking it, I'm like, we won. It made all the difference in the world when you win. And um, it was funny. My granddaughter, she was voted best personality, and she's the only one who ate her tiara and her roses that they gave her. And uh, scowled at the judges. So I guess that's the reason she got it. Winning is important um, if you do it right. And we're going to talk today about winning. And we're going to talk about doing it right. Humility is the secret to doing it right. I have never met a person too humble to be powerful spiritually and to win the right way. But I've met a lot of people who think they're too powerful to be spiritually powerful and ever have a chance of winning the right way. So today we're gonna to talk about humility, about winning, and about doing it right. So I'm taking you back to the children of Israel and we are finally, we are finally camped out in front of the walls of Jericho. It's taken us almost two months to go on this journey that only took them just a few short weeks. And it started off as a message that became a series that has impacted me in my own faith journey and I trust has impacted you as well. If you remember the children of Israel, they sent spies into Jericho and the spies stayed with a prostitute named Rahab and came back and said, yes, they're scared of us. Yes, we can take over. Yes, we should do what God wants us to do. And so then they came back and the children of Israel crossed the Jordan and the waters of the Jordan were parted miraculously. They were told to build a monument in the middle of the, uh, of the Jordan. At first, take the rocks out of the Jordan and take it over to the other side and build a monument of God's faithfulness. And then they had all the stuff we talked about last week about consecration or two weeks ago go, preparing yourself, remember the circumcision conversation, and now we are camped out right in the shadow of the walls of Jericho, and it's finally time for them to take over the city that represents the children of Israel going into the promised land, going into the land that had been promised to them since the time of Abraham. A group of nomads, of wanderers, a whole generation of wanderers who knew nothing but the desert and nothing except wandering from place to place, expecting God to take care of them. And so we see them, the promise of God and the promise of God being fulfilled with them in this story. And it's a simple story, but it's a profound story. And the walls of Jericho are finally going to tumble down. So. Let's begin together and read this story. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred 
because of the Israelites. No one went in or out and nobody came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. So this, when the Lord said to Joshua that Jericho has been delivered into their hands, it was the fulfillment of a promise. March around the city once with all the armed men and do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city uh, seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Instructions that are brutal. Instructions that are, well, they're gonna take a long time. Instructions that they have to follow to the letter. Now, the instructions were simple. This is what I want you to do. I want you, all of you soldiers, to get in line. And I want you to walk around the city of Jericho. I want you to walk and I want you to be silent and I want you to be obedient and I want you to follow the ark of the Lord. Now, if you are like me, and I think you probably are, you'd be a little stressed out about these instructions because walking in silence is not at all what they had in mind. These were people who were ready to fight. They were people who had been anticipating a conflict with the citizens of Jericho, people who probably wanted to do something. And what they were being told is, don't do anything. For six days, I want you to get up in the morning and I want you to fall in line behind the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And I want you to walk and I want you to march. And I don't want you to even whisper a word. Now, there would have been some conversations that would have probably taken place with these men. And in this case, it was just the men who were following each other, marching around the walls of the city of Jericho. And the conversations probably would have gone like this. This sounds ridiculous. I have some skills. I've learned to fight. We at least need to throw some rocks. There has to be something that we can do. Do you know how dumb it's going to look if all we do is march around this terrible city, this city full of people who hate us and want to destroy us, if all we do is walk around this city in silence? And they had to talk and they had to decide. They had to, well, learn to be humble and learn to submit. And that really is part of winning. Part of winning God's way is coming to the end of us telling the Lord, I have a strategy, I have something to offer, I'm powerful enough to make a difference, let's try to do it my way. And so these soldiers, this unlikely group of nomads, got up in the morning and did what the Lord asked them to do. Now can you imagine on the first day, your military tactic, your strategy that's been given to you by your general, by your leader, is literally to do nothing. And you get up on that first day and you begin to march. Now, the citizens of Jericho, many of them would have been on the walls looking down because Jericho was a, a formidable city. Jericho was a city that had walls that had been in existence for a thousand plus years. Many people had tried to overtake the city and none had had any success in overtaking the city. There would have been people up on the walls looking down, afraid of the children of Israel because of their military conquests on the other side of the Jordan. 
And I think, and I'm not there, and the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I think it's reasonable to assume that on the first day, maybe the people who were up on the walls looking down were a little scared. They were wondering, okay, are they going to make a right turn and then they're going to attack? Are they going to go around to the back of the city and then maybe that's when they use the ladder or the catapult or, or whatever it is that they're going to do? Surely there's some kind of a, of a plan. And the children of Israel, they march around the city waiting literally taking one step in front of the other in obedience, wondering, is God going to show up? Is he going to keep his promise? Will these walls actually ever come tumbling down? Now, one of the important principles to note here is that there are walls in your life that you desperately want to come tumbling down. And the only way to see God do amazing things is to continue to take simple steps of obedience. Continue to humble ourselves and allow God to do things the way he wants to do them. Now, you and I make choices all the time. It doesn't make sense. The world has a different plan. It's hard to do things God's way. So maybe they get up the second day and they're like, well, what are we gonna do today? We're gonna march around the city. Well, are we gonna get to fight today? Are we gonna get to throw rocks? Are we gonna get to... Are we going to yell at them? Nope. We're going to get to march. We're going to get to march in silence. So they get up and they march. And they march in silence. Now, I think maybe the citizens of Jericho, maybe they're getting a little bit cocky by this time. Maybe not. I'd be getting a little cocky. I'm thinking maybe they're scared of us. This group of people who supposedly have this God who's helping them, they haven't done anything to us yet. Maybe they're throwing rocks at them. Maybe pebbles at first and then ducking down, you know, and not wanting them to see. And then maybe larger rocks, maybe even verbal insults. On the third day, they get up, they march around the city and don't say a word. What are we going to do tomorrow? Are we going to do the same thing? Joshua said, do this for seven days. God said, do it. Doesn't make sense. Have you ever tried to obey the Lord and realized how much sense that it doesn't make to other people, the people who are around us. They get up on the fifth day and they march and they march in silence. They get up on the sixth day and they march and they march in silence and they wait. In the times of waiting, doubt creeps in. Will God keep his promises? Is God paying attention? Is this really worth it? God's teaching them humility, spiritual power, and dependence. We all have to learn it. But waiting is no fun. Waiting's terrible. As a matter of fact, I had to wait this last Friday. Uh, this last Friday, I had to go to Iowa City. Iowa City is a nice city, kind of a cool city. I'd only been there a couple times previously, but I got to go to the University of Iowa Hospital. And I had some tests that I had to go do because, um, you know, we're still trying to get to the end of this thyroid uh, cancer and we're actually kind of getting to the end of what we think. Uh, at least it looks like it's going to be the end of it. But I had to go do some tests and I hate tests. You guys know this. And so I had to show up on early on, uh, on Friday morning. And so Joy and I went and we stayed the night Thursday in Iowa City. And I get up early and I go straight to the hospital. And, and the first thing they have to do to me is they have to give me an IV. Now, not that big a deal, right? IV, people get IVs all the time. Needles don't bother me, but I'm a little nervous about the day. 
because the day, I mean, the hospital and the doctors and they just do things to you that they don't talk to you about ahead of time and they're unfamiliar and they're strange and they give you tests you can't study for. And, and so I'm, I'm laying, you're sitting there and the lady comes in and says, we're gonna give you an IV. And I said, great. And she goes, oh, I like your veins. And I said, great, they do a good job pumping blood to my head and heart and stuff. Um, I like them too. And she said, if I miss your veins, she goes, I should go home. And I said, great. So I hand her my arms and she sticks a needle in my arm and she says, oops. Um, and I said, oops. And she said, yeah, I think I hit something. She said, I missed. And I said, you should go home. And she finally got it right. Now, what you don't know is that Pastor Dan, he hates needles and he hates IVs. Like, I mean, hates. And it's Pastor Dan's birthday today. So you guys should tell him some other time, not right now, happy birthday, because uh, you'll, you'll interrupt my message and get me off my train of thought. It's not good. But Pastor Dan, I knew this was about breakfast time. And so as soon as she got my IV in, um, I took a picture of it up close and sent it to Dan so I could catch him right as he was eating breakfast, because that's what good friends do when they love each other. And I wanted to make his birthday weekend extra special. And so they send me into the CAT scan room and um, they're gonna do a CAT scan from like here up. And I'm like, all right, no, no big deal. And they said, it's a CAT scan with contrast. And I said, so what's this contrast? And they said, it's a dye we're gonna give you in your IV and you might be allergic to it, but probably not. And I said, okay, good. And so um, I said, what do I have to do? And they said, nothing, lay down, put your hands in your pockets and relax. And so I lay down on this table that they're gonna slide me into a tube and give me a CAT scan. And um, they said, we're getting ready to give you the contrast. And I said, no, no problem, but it was a problem. And let me tell you why. I like information ahead of time. And um, I wanna know possibilities and what's gonna happen and what to expect. And um, the lady, the nurse, as she began to inject the contrast into my IV, she said, one of, uh, well, there's some things that are gonna happen. I said, okay, great. This story is gonna get a little junior high, so just bear with me. She said, first, you're gonna get really hot in the top of your head. Those who've had CAT scans, you know what I'm talking about. And she goes, then you're gonna get a metal taste in your mouth. And I said, great, I can handle that. And she goes, then you're gonna have a burning either in your bladder or your rectum. Now, it's a medical term. I can say that in church, it's okay, right? And she said, either or. And she goes, you're gonna feel like you're gonna go to the bathroom on yourself, but most people don't. And then before letting me ask a question, she pushed the button and shoved me in the tube. And so I'm waiting for the sensation, trying to decide, is it gonna go north or south? And am I gonna be one of the 10% that needs new jeans because I only brought one pair of jeans to Iowa City. And so I'm in the tube waiting. And sure enough, it starts in my head. I feel it, it's hot, not a big deal. I taste it in my mouth. I get the metal taste in my mouth and it settles south, not north, right? And so I'm laying there and, I, and I'm thinking, I know for sure I'm gonna be one of the 10% that is, you know, that goes to the bathroom in their pants and I'm gonna make the medical journals or something and at least they'll talk about it at lunch. And, uh, and I didn't, I made it through, through the test, but even though the waiting was only about 15 seconds, it seemed like it was forever. Because waiting is really hard when you get up, when you march, when you have things in your life, when you know that there are walls that need to come down. But it just seems like it takes forever. What do you do while you wait? What do you do in the meantime? The Apostle Paul talks about this, and he talked about it in, in a really important book in 2 Corinthians. And the reason that he talks about this is because Paul was being accused of being self-reliant. He was accused of being egotistical. He was being accused of thinking that he had the capability and the power to do things himself. 
People who didn't like him were accusing him of not doing things God's way, but doing things his way. And so he wrote this letter largely to defend himself, but basically saying, God is the person I serve, and I don't have the strength. God has the strength, and the things that are important come from him, not from me. And he writes this passage of Scripture in in a way that's so personal and so important, but yet deals with us as we wait and as we watch and as we are obedient and as we learn humility. It's important for us to talk about it. And he says, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now, we've talked about this a couple years ago. The word thorn here is probably not translated very well. What this word literally means is a stake that can impale my body. I was given by God, I was given a thorn, something that continues to plague me, that reminds me that I'm not powerful enough, that I'm not strong enough, I'm not smart enough. Remember, I've never met somebody too humble to be powerful but I've met a lot of people who feel like they're too powerful to ever be truly spiritual power, spiritually powerful. And he says, in order for me to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I want you to think about this. This was possibly one instantaneous sort of conversation happening at you know, one, maybe 10, 15 minute period. But many people think this was three separate conversations that the Apostle Paul had with the Lord at three important periods in his life where he said, I have things that I wish you would do. I have problems that I wish that you would take care of. There are walls in my life that I wish that you would tear down. Would you please take them away? And I was thinking about the three times in life. All of us have different times or seasons. Parenting, when your kids are little, I mean, they're things that you just trust God for, that you pray about, you beg God to do, to protect, to take care of, to provide. When they begin to age, begin to get a little older, begin to make decisions that are out of your control, it's a whole different kind of stress and we pray and we ask God for his intervention. Then when they have kids of their own and they move out and start making those adult life decisions, maybe it's just in life itself. When you're young and you trust God because you don't know what the future is gonna hold, you hit middle age. And you begin to look and wonder whether you've accomplished God's purpose for your life. Maybe you begin to enter those late years and you look back and you realize there's not a lot of years ahead and you reflect, forcing us to trust God. Maybe it's an illness, maybe it's a financial situation, perhaps a relationship. Maybe something you're born with. Maybe somebody from the outside, a person in your life that just continues to plague you. But whatever it is, we're taught, we're instructed by Scripture to get up, to walk in obedience, to be faithful, and to trust God to move the walls, to break down the barriers, to do the miracles. In this case, the Apostle Paul, he says to Jesus, take it away. And he doesn't just ask him once, he asks him again, make it go away. He doesn't just ask him twice, he asks him again, he says, make it go away. And Jesus answered him and he says, well, let me read it for you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect 
in your weakness. Now think about the children of Israel walking around the wall, thinking about them walking in silence, thinking about them waking up, waking up in the morning, wanting to fight, wanting to contribute, wanting to help. All they can do, walk, don't talk, don't gesture. I would at least want to make a gesture to the wall, to the people on top of the wall. You can guess the gesture, something to show defiance, to show that I'm going to, and all they can do is just take steps of obedience and faithfulness, waiting for God to do what God's going to do, to learn to be dependent. And these words, although written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, were as true then as they are when they were written and as true as they are today. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Weaknesses, the things that God puts in our life, these things humble us. These things draw us to the Lord in dependence. And these things put us in a place where we can experience God's grace that we wouldn't be able to experience in any other way. And so what Jesus is saying is, I leave them there because I love you and I want you to win, but I want you to win my way. While you're waiting, I am working. While you're walking, I am working. While you're watching, I am working. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. I'm going to read that again. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about all of the weaknesses that I have so that Christ's power could rest in me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and in difficulties. And then here's the point. And this is the point that the children of Israel were learning as they marched around the walls of Jericho. We're going to read it together. This last little part of 2 Corinthians 12, 10 that's in bold. We're going to read it out loud. I'm going to start with the word for because that's the word that we're going to start with. It's the word that's there. Are you ready? Let's do it together. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. For when I am strong, I'm really weak. It's so counter to our human nature, so contrary to what so much of the world teaches us to aspire for or to become. But God's blueprint, His plan, looks different but it works. Now, I was thinking about this the other day, yesterday, and praying for you guys, and grace is a word that's mentioned so many times in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul and even by Jesus. And I was thinking about an acronym, and this acronym is not comprehensive. It doesn't encompass all of the idea of grace, but it certainly encompasses some. And the acronym is pretty simple. The first one is GROW, the first word. And I want you to remember that life is about growth and growth is never easy. And the point is that today we're supposed to be a little more faithful than we were yesterday. And tomorrow we're supposed to be a little bit more faithful than we are today. 
that our faith is supposed to grow and we are supposed to become a little bit more dependent on Jesus each and every day. And it's uncomfortable. It's not second nature. It's contrary to the pull of the world, but it's the point. And a lot of the things that God uses in our lives to help us grow are the very things that we wish were gone. The second is to remember. Remember who you are. You're a child of God. You're saved by grace through faith. Hell no longer waits for you. But the reality of heaven is the promise that you have to come. There's a purpose in this life that God has given you and hope and meaning that you can find. Remember who you are. The next word, A. Sounds a lot like AA and there are tremendous things that happen and come from and through AA, except that there are going to be things in our life that we can't change. They're just there. Things we've been through, things we're going through, even things about us. To accept it, to learn to become comfortably uncomfortable with that reality and realize that our faith can grow even though it's still there. C, this is an important one, change. Change those things in our life that we know we need to change. There are probably some things you're doing that you know you need to stop. Because without stopping, the walls will never fall down. Had the children of Israel stopped walking after day number two and set up camp and complained that the walls were still there but refused to do things God's way, we would call them ridiculous. Yet in our lives, we do the same thing. There's some things in our life that we know we should start doing. But yet we refuse. We set up camp on the fourth day and shake our fist at the walls in our life and say, God, why won't you tear these walls down? And it's because we're not willing to do things God's way. E is my favorite. And that is to expect that everything in life can change for the better in one supernatural instant. And that's the reality of the hope that we have and the power of the God who we serve. Everything can change in one supernatural instant. And the instants sometimes are excruciating and seem sometimes to take forever, but yet we wait, and then when God shows up with an answer, then we respond. And sometimes the walls in our life, they come down now, and sometimes they come down later, and we know that eventually all the walls are going to come down, at least at the time we leave this life behind, because in heaven there are no walls. But faithfulness is what's required for growth, and grace is what gives us the strength to endure or to persevere. Joy and I, we were sitting in the doctor's office, and we were waiting for him to come in with the results of the CAT scan. And I hate waiting, and um, you just are hinging on whatever a doctor comes in and says. And they, I mean, they examine all kinds of stuff, right? And so we're waiting. They said he'll be in in a few minutes. It seemed like it was 45 minutes or an hour. I'm sure it wasn't. He came in and he gave us, you know, I mean, good news. It was news we were hoping to hear, which was, we were excited about. But, um, but, but the, the point is, before he came in, I said, Joy, what do you think's going to happen? 
And um, Dwight goes, it'll be worse than we thought. It'll be the same as we think, or it'll be better than we think. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That's the supportive answer that you give me when we're waiting for the doctor to come in. I mean, he comes in, and, 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 and I wanted Joy to say something optimistic, something positive, but then this is what she said. Whether it's worse than we think, whether it's the same that we think, or whether it's better than we think, she said, we'll handle it. She said, God will get us through it. That's what my wife said. Whether the wall comes down today, whether it comes down in a year, whether it comes down at the time we move on to the reality of heaven to come, the walls are coming down for those of us who will choose to live faithfully. But it only works one way. And we have to decide. So here's what happens. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak. One more day, just like every other day. The last six excruciating days. And they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Now, don't underestimate how important that in the same manner is. Because you and I get bored. And when we get bored, we start getting creative. And when we start getting creative, sometimes we step beyond our pay grade and we start trying to play God. Now, a lot of what we have to learn happens through repetition and obedience and faithfulness. In the same manner as the previous six days, the seventh time around, where they circled the city seven times, and the seventh time around when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army. He said, now you can do something. He says, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. God hasn't given them the city yet. The walls were still up. The people were still inside, insulting them, making fun of them. Nothing had happened circumstantially, but God had decided it was time. And God always keeps his promises. When the trumpets sounded, the army, they shouted. Wouldn't that be great to be able to shout after six days of walking in silence and then walking around seven times, not being able to even say a word? My God's going to get you nothing. You couldn't say anything. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the walls, they collapsed. So everybody charged straight in. And they took the city. And they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Because that's the way it worked in the Old Testament. And it was part of the fulfillment of a promise that God made many, many years ago. So I want to ask you the question... When people look at your lives, and I believe that it's 100% fair for the world around us to judge us, you and me, because we call ourselves Christians, I believe it's 100% fair for the world around us to judge us by whether or not we live like Jesus. We ask for that by calling ourselves Christians and I wonder if you and I can say the same thing the Apostle Paul says. Your grace is all I need. Because your strength, God, is made obvious through my weakness. And even though I can't, you can. And even though I probably won't, you will. So it's all I need. 
And I want people who don't know you to see that. When they look at us, do they look at us and do they say arrogant, judgmental, off-putting, bigoted, proud? Or do they say faithful, confident, obedient, optimistic, expectation? The way we live, the way we march, the way we wait makes all the difference in the world. And the walls don't come down any other way. Father, thank you for my friends.